Hello and welcome to Socialism, the weekly Marxist analysis podcast from the Socialist Party. We've just commemorated the 100th anniversary of the end of World War I. Establishment commentary on the armistice tends to focus on the huge suffering and loss of life. We share ordinary people's horror at this unprecedented imperialist slaughter. But why did it take till 1918 for the warring capitalist governments to suddenly become concerned? What you rarely hear from the establishment is that revolutionary events forced their hand. So this week we're discussing how workers' radicalization and revolution ended the First World War. Over to Sarah Rack. I'm here today with Bob Larby from the Committee for a Workers International, which is the international organisation that the Socialist Party is part of. Hi, Bob. Hi. Um, and we're going to be discussing today the end of World War One, which there's just been commemorations of, which I think are, you know a lot of working class people will have been um, kind of paying attention to. And we're going to be looking a bit deeper maybe than what the official analysis of the end of that war is. Um, so to start with, Bob, we like to ask kind of why is this discussion worth having? So why is it important for socialists to discuss and try and understand the real factors behind the end of World War One? The main reasons for, us, for discussing that are twofold. One is there is still the memory of the absolute horror of the First World War, the horror of the war itself and what happened uh, afterwards, where millions upon millions of people died or were injured, lost their homes because of this slaughter, and a slaughter which was widely seen as a war between different imperial powers. And that horror of the First World War has echoed down to this day, and in fact, it was a few years ago in Britain that there was a meeting of British historians who were discussing how to try and change that outlook towards the First World War, that it was entirely seen as a negative disaster which affected large sections of humanity. And what we saw seen since then is a concentration in all the anniversaries on the horrific suffering of the soldiers. And there is no doubt that among millions of uh, people, there is a real sympathy for the soldiers, a real feeling of what did they sacrifice their lives for? What was the fighting all about? And we ourselves as socialists, people who opposed the First World War at the time, are absolutely, completely in solidarity with that feeling that this was a horrendous uh, loss of life, which affected uh, millions of uh, people and something which we never want to see repeated again, although wars have continued in the last hundred years. But if we look at the actual end of the First World War, there is another factor. The timing at the end of the First World War was really occasioned by the development of revolution in Germany, a revolution which was inspired, in, to some extent, by the Russian Revolution the previous year, 1917. Obviously, against this took place against the background of a change in the world uh, situation. The entry of the United States into the First World War in 1917 was beginning to have an impact in 1918. It's estimated that in spring 1918 there were 10,000 US troops arriving every day in Europe to fight in the war. By the end of May 1918 there were 650,000 American soldiers. And this influx of American manpower and also 
the equipment which they were bringing was beginning to tilt the balance against what were called the central powers. That was the old German Empire and the Austro-Hungarian Empire. They had conducted offensives, military offensives, in, in spring 1918 in an attempt to secure victory before the Americans tipped the balance against them. And while these offensives made advances, by the middle of uh, 1918, it was clear that they could note that those offences had failed, that the central powers were facing uh, defeat. And this began to change the entire situation, because as it became clear that the central powers faced uh, defeat, there was a natural feeling developing in Germany, why should we continue uh, fighting? It increased the hostility to the war. So you had both the background factors of the impending defeat of the German and Austro-Hungarian empires, and at the same time, the timing of the end of the war was brought about by the revolution in Germany. Okay, so you've started to give us an idea there then of what are the biggest factors in why the war ended at the point that it did. Well, as I said, it was the development of or the breaking out of revolution in Germany. Now, from the beginning of the First World War, there had been opposition in uh, in Germany to the first uh, to the war, as there had been in other countries as well. But that opposition initially was a very small opposition, which had developed. But during the course of the war, it steadily expanded, and so by 1916 there were quite sizable demonstrations on on the first of May against the continuation of war. Not mass demonstrations, but sizable demonstrations of tens of thousands. And then, as I mentioned earlier, the outbreak of the Russian Revolution in 1917 had an enormous effect in Germany and in other countries as well. First of all, in the first Russian Revolution of 1917, the February Revolution, which overthrew the Tsarist regime, that had an impact as being seen as a revolution against the autocracy, against the semi-disguised dictatorship and for democratic rights. But then the October Revolution of 1917 had an even bigger impact because that revolution, led by the Bolsheviks, which prepared the way for the overthrow of capitalism in, uh, in Russia, was based upon an internationalist outlook. So at the very beginning of the October Revolution, when the old regime had been overthrown, when you had the working class beginning to come to power, in, uh, in uh, Russia in October 1917, they made an appeal to the workers of Germany, France, Britain, throughout the world to follow their example, to fight against not just capitalism, but also to end this uh, war, which wasn't in the interests of working uh, people. And that had a very big uh, effect, so that by the beginning of 1918, we saw anti-war strikes beginning to break out in Austria-Hungary and then in uh, then in uh, Germany, quite sizable strikes involving tens of thousands, maybe up over hundreds of thousands of uh, workers, combining both economic issues uh, on the question of wages, uh, on the question of living uh, conditions, but also with a clear anti-war uh, settlement. And this indicated the growing mood which was uh, which was uh, taking place in Germany at that uh, time. And so you mentioned at the start. Um, of your answer there, that that kind of that uh, growing anti-war sentiment in Germany, particular in particular, and obviously, yeah, that a, a factor in that was the Russian Revolution and the appeal made from that. But 
what what else kind of played into that growing anti-war sentiment and why it increased? The the other backgrounds were, I mean, you had a situation where, because of the blockade of uh, of uh, Germany, the naval uh, blockade of Germany and, and Central uh, Europe, you had a sharp worsening of living uh, standards. Uh, food that was becoming scarce was becoming more uh, expensive. That obviously fueled discontent, but there was a growing questioning of what was the war about. Because there had been, in the socialist movement, in Germany and in fact internationally before the First World War, a strong anti-war uh, settlement, uh, sentiment. It had been understood that there was a likelihood of a, war, a new war breaking out in Europe. So that issue had been discussed inside the socialist movement nationally and internationally <coughs> in the years before 1914. In 1907, an International Socialist Congress met in Germany, and that discussed what, uh, you know, opposition to the war, but not just opposition to the war, but also how the war should actually be, how the outbreak of war should be uh, actually fought. That there should be, if you like, attempts by the uh, workers' organisations, the socialist parties, the trade unions, to stop the outbreak of war, and but in the case that they weren't able to stop the outbreak of war, they should use the occasion of war to try and intervene. And in the words of the resolution which was passed in, in 1907, to, to intervene and, and struggle for the speedy termination of the war and strive with all their power to utilise the economic and political crisis created by the war to rouse the masses and thereby hasten the downfall of capitalist class rule. And that was the official position of the international socialist uh, movement. And certainly, as the countdown to war developed in 1914, there were, in the number of countries, uh, including uh, Germany, Britain and, and France, quite big anti-war demonstrations organised by the socialist uh, and trade union movement, quite large-scale demonstrations arguing against the uh, war. But then when the actual fighting started, we had the situation where the majority of the leaders of the socialist parties and the trade unions suddenly dropped their opposition and they argued in support of the war. They argued it was necessary for the workers in, in their countries to support the ruling uh, governments, to support the ruling classes in a fight uh, for uh, in, in, in this uh, war. So we had a complete about turn from the socialist, and, uh, socialist movement being opposed to war to the vast majority of socialist parties internationally, not all, but the vast majority supporting their own countries in, in the uh, war. And of course, they used different excuses. In Britain, they used, you know, the German uh, invasion of Belgium, saying, you know, we've got to defend, as they put it, poor little Belgium. Now, yes, Belgium uh, was a small country, is a small uh, country, but at the same time, it was an imperialist country. It governed a whole part of, of uh, Africa, the Congo, and ruled it exceedingly br brutally. It wasn't the size of the Belgian Empire, wasn't the same size as the British, French or German empires, but nevertheless, they had a big one. So they weren't exactly just a poor little, uh, a poor little country. In Germany, they argued, uh, the socialist leaders, one of the reasons they argued for uh, supporting in the war was the threat posed by Russia. 
saying that in Germany, at least there are limited democratic rights, and there aren't even these limited democratic rights in Russia. That Russia is a uh, is a is a uh, is a autocracy is a is a dictatorship, which was true, and especially that is why the outbreak of the Russian Revolution in 1917. In fact, in Germany and in Austria-Hungary, removed one of the main propaganda points, why to support the war. Because the argument was before the Tsar. The Tsar, the Tsar had gone. There was now, quote, a democratic republic in, uh, in uh, Russia. This even after February 1917. So the argument to support the war was, uh, was, um, was uh, weakened. Then you had the situation in early 1918 where... The new Soviet government, the Bolsheviks in Russia, attempted to make a peace deal to end the war with the, with the German Empire. And the German Empire, in exchange for declaring the end of the war, demanded a whole series of, of concessions from the Bolsheviks, including the handing over of large parts of the territory of the old Russian Empire to the German Empire. And this uh, treaty, the Peace of uh, Brest-Litovsk, was, if you like, an illustration to many Germans of the imperialist character of the war. It further undermined the propaganda that this was a war to defend uh, Germany. It was seen more clearly by wider layers as an imperialist war. So all of these things fed together to uh, prepare the way for the, to build the opposition and to prepare the way for the outbreak of the revolution. So... Then that mood's developing uh, in that situation and starts to manifest in protests and strikes, as you mentioned earlier. And one of the kind of big events uh, that, that sparked the, the, the revolution was what happened in Kiel, wasn't it? So do you want to talk about that a bit, maybe? Well, the it became clear in the autumn of 1918 <coughs> that Germany could not win militarily. Effectively, from 1916... Germany had been a military dictatorship. The generals had run the country effectively. They then decided to step back from running the country. They said to the Tsar, uh, sorry, to the um, Kaiser, the German emperor, they couldn't win the war. And so what they did was they handed over power to a civilian government because what they wanted was for the civilian government to have the responsibility for arguing for peace so that the military could have their hands clean. And later, we know that they developed the idea, the propaganda idea, that Germany had lost the war because the German army had been stabbed in the back. That So the generals prepared for that propaganda, that they weren't responsible for the end of the war, but the civilian politicians were, by handing over power to the civilians. Now, as soon as that happened, the civilian government attempted to start negotiating for an armistice, uh, for an end to the uh, fighting, as was happening in some of Germany's uh, allies, like Bulgaria and Austria-Hungary as well. But the leaders of the German uh, navy weren't happy with that. They wanted to have one last battle against the Royal Navy, the British Royal Navy, in order to show the superiority of the German Navy. They, they were not prepared to go down without a fight. So they then said to the ships, right, you're prepared to sail, we're prepared for battle because we're going to sail from Germany into the North Sea in order to fight the British Navy. And the sailors already knew that the war was coming to an end. They knew that there was discussions about armistice and they thought, why should we you know, 
if you like, uh, move our ships, go to battle for an absolutely useless battle in which tens of thousands of us could uh, be killed for no reason other than, if you like, the honour and the prestige of the admirals commanding the uh, navy. And so when they were ordered to prepare to go into battle, they refused. They saw no point whatsoever, and they mutinied. And in mutinying, they didn't just, if you like, stay in their base. They then marched into uh, Kiel, uh, the uh, port, uh, or one of the major German ports at that uh, time, and they linked up with workers in Kiel. And what they did was they overthrew the government in that area. And significantly, they set up what they called a uh, workers and soldiers council to run that city. Now, the significance of that was that that name had been inspired by the Russian Revolution. They almost directly translated the Russian words into German, the Russian word Soviet for council, into Rat for, uh, for uh, council in uh, Germany. It was almost an exact translation. They were clearly not just against this lunatic idea of sailing out to their deaths in the North Sea, but also because of the movement which was developing, they saw the chance to follow the example of the Russian Revolution. And what happened was, within a matter of days, that example spread through Germany. The uh, soldiers, sailors and workers of Kiel, they sent messengers through the rest of Germany. The news spread. And in city after city, the same thing happened. Within a matter of days, in less than a week, the German Empire had crumbled, had been overthrown. The Kaiser, the Emperor, fled to exile in the Netherlands. The whole of Germany was uh, was uh, transformed. Uh, the revolution broke out. And it wasn't just, if you like, to end the war. It was clearly with the idea, clearly with the idea of trying to change, uh, trying to change the uh, society. And faced with that, the leaders of the, of the German Social Democratic Party, leaders who had previously supported the First World War fully, some of them had supported the aims of the, uh, of the First World War, of the German imperialist aims of the First World War, like there was a discussion in the, um, in the German Social Democrats, should they support uh, Germany taking over Antwerp in Belgium and merging that into Germany, because uh, Germany needed the sea access through Antwerp. And these things, they all, many of them, these people, they totally supported. But seeing the development of the revolution, they what they did was they put themselves formally at the head of the revolution in order to divert it or control it and then betray it. So with the collapse of the government in uh, Germany, a new government was formed at, uh, at the beginning of November 1918. And that government took exactly the same name as the German, as, as the, sorry, as the Russian government under Lenin and uh, Trotsky. In Russia, it was called the Councils of People's Commissars. In, uh, in German, you could say the Council of People's Representatives. It was more or less exactly the same uh, word, but with a different content. Because in Russia, after the October Revolution, the, uh, the government there was moving, with, was uh, at the head of a workers' movement, moving to break with capitalism, to build the foundations of a different society. In Germany, the Social Democrats formed that government, as I said, with the idea of holding back the movement. But the fact that they had to use that name was an indication of just the depth of the revolution, which swept through Germany in a matter of a few days. 
So I think uh, we should come back in a moment to a bit more about um, the role of different uh, socialist groups, but maybe first on the impact on the other side of society of those events you've just uh, described. So what was the impact of those revolutionary events on the capitalist class uh, in Germany, but also internationally? In Germany, the uh, if you like, the capitalists from the beginning, they were taken by absolute uh, surprise, by shock, by what happened. They didn't expect it. At the same time, the social democratic uh, the social democratic leaders from the beginning were making overtures to the German military leaders that they would work together. Something which which uh, played a role in what happened later in 1918 and 1919 and afterwards in uh, Germany. But internationally, the spread of the revolution of Germany was an absolute shock to the uh, ruling classes. They already feared the spread of what they called Bolshevism internationally. And this explains what really happened uh, to end the actual fighting. Already talks <coughs> were beginning to, or were being prepared for, for a peace deal between G uh, Germany, Austria, and the Western powers, that's uh, Britain, France, and the uh, US. But the deal itself was enormously accelerated by the outbreak of revolution. On November the 9th, the German Republic was declared, the Kaiser uh, fled, uh, and it was clear that at least the old Kaiser state had been removed in, uh, or been removed from power uh, in, uh, in Germany. That very evening, the British government held a, cab a meeting of its ministers, a cabinet uh, meeting, to discuss the situation. And they heard at that cabinet meeting that the French leader, uh, Clemenceau, had written to the uh, British government saying that he, that he was afraid now that Germany may collapse and that Bolshevism could, could uh, gain uh, control in, uh, in Germany with, and have an impact in the whole of uh, Europe. On that basis, the uh, British government uh, argued uh, or agreed that immediately they should move to end the war as fast as uh, possible, in order to uh, try and prevent the consolidation of the revolution in Germany, and, as they put it, the spread of uh, Bolshevism. So this was agreed on the night of November the uh, 9th, and the peace agreement itself was agreed in early in the morning on November the 11th, and the ceasefire stop, the, stopping the war was implemented a few hours later, uh, in, around the, uh, in the morning of November the 11th. So the speed of the negotiations, the speed of stopping the, uh, of, of the end of the fighting, uh, at least in the Western Front, uh, that was occasioned by the uh, fear of uh, revolution. And the fear of revolution became the dominant factor. Yes, the Western powers... By having beaten uh, Germany, they demanded a weakening of the German army, taking over whole sections of, uh, you know, of armaments and, th and things like this. But at the same time, they didn't want to weaken the German army uh, too much. Winston Churchill, who later obviously was the British Prime Minister in the Second World War, at that stage he was a minister in the First World War uh, government, and deeply opposed to to uh, to to uh, Germany you know, in conflict with. Nevertheless, he said on November the tenth that 
That is, while the negotiations were going on, the day before the armistice was uh, declared, he commented that we, meaning Britain, might have to build up the German army, as it is important to get Germany on her legs again for fear of the spread of Bolshevism. And this really summed up their whole uh, their whole approach, that they were terrified, not just of Bolshevism spreading in the uh, in uh, Europe, but also increasingly, and that was became clearer in the years afterwards, of the impact of the Russian Revolution throughout the uh, world. Yeah, I think those points are kind of the key ones that are missing from uh, the official commemorations of the end of the war is that 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 role of um revolution and the massive fear instilled in the capitalist class now you mentioned their um peace agreements and ceasefires the end of fighting but the the end of the war in that sense didn't bring about a period of peace for all did it not at all i mean in western europe there was effectively the war stopped in western europe but in many other parts of the world, fighting uh, continued. There was large-scale fighting of different characters in Central Eastern Europe, the Baltic in Finland, for instance, uh, fighting which was partly the result of civil wars, uh, revolutions and counter-revolutions, also fighting between different uh, nationalities. We had a large-scale war between Greece and Turkey, which resulted in the early 1920s of a forced population transfer of millions of uh, Greeks and Turks were moved from where they were living into the new states, or if you like, of Greece and Turkey. Throughout the Middle East, you had fighting at different uh, times as the uh, peoples of the Middle East resisted the attempt of the British and uh, and uh, French to take the place of the Ottoman Empire. The Ottoman Empire, based on Turkey, had collapsed, uh, partly as a result of the, uh, of the uh, First World War. You had the Britain and France trying to carve up the Middle East between them. They wanted to be the new colonial powers. The peoples of the Middle East resisted it, and they were fighting there. In fact, the, the Royal Air Force... Uh, invented, if you like, if you, the large-scale bombing of civilian targets during, uh, you know, from the air in fighting in Iraq. And it's also, um, you know, they set a world precedent in, in that sense, which again isn't marked when also recently we've had the 100th anniversary of the formation of the Royal Air Force in, uh, in uh, Britain. At the same time, in, uh, in, in India, in China, there were movements against the colonial, uh, the colonial rules. So, in, in that sense, while the fighting stopped, if you like, in France and in um, and in Belgium, the fighting between the different armies, the fighting's linked to different revolutions and counter-revolutions, the fighting between different uh, nationalities in different parts of uh, the world, they uh, still uh, continue. So it wasn't in any way a period of uh, peace. And, and this comes into one of... A, shows the hypocrisy of one of the slogans in regard to the, the First World War. In Britain, the First World War was sometimes presented as the war to end wars. In other words, you know, see this war through and then there'll be peace. And of course it wasn't. It, it wasn't. Not just in what happened in the 20s and the 30s, but also in some senses you could say that the outcome of the First World War led into the Second World War. Mm. Um. So going 
back then to um, the points about uh, the role of socialists in some of these events. And at different points in this discussion, you've mentioned the discussions that were had amongst socialists before the war and in the kind of um, anti-war protests at that time. Um, the then change that happened when the war uh, broke out and then in Germany the role that was uh, played in in the revolution obviously so do you want to speak a bit maybe about the the role of different socialist groups and trends the debates that took place and and how it changed at different points in those processes As, as I mentioned earlier in most countries the Leaderships of different socialist parties, or like in Britain, the Labour Party, supported their own ruling classes in the in the uh, war. Um, but from the beginning, there was opposition of different characters, of different types within the uh, within the uh, within the movement. There was, and the opposition tended to grow as the suffering uh, caused by the war increased, as the imperialist uh, aims if you like of the um, of the main participants in the war became uh, clearer and a growing desire for change and obviously key to that as I mentioned before as well was the impact of the 1917 Russian uh, revolution and if we look in a number of countries we can see that this sentiment developed change taking place inside or around inside and around the old parties but also in the in the movement in the workers movement more generally and you saw the development of different trends on the one hand a trend which was more pacifist just wanted an end to war uh, uh, peace let's just stop the fighting which was initially was getting wider support you know from in a, in a number of in a number of countries at the same time, there was the left wing, so to speak, which still, if you like, believed or supported the ideas which had, for instance, been expressed in the 1907 International Socialist Congress, that if a war broke out, the question was, the responsibility wasn't just to oppose the war, but also to utilise the crisis that the war created to end the rule of capitalism. Those who didn't just simply want an end to the war, but also it saw more consciously the idea of an end to the system which had provoked the uh, which had provoked the war, and these ideas began to get more and more support. This is both during the war, but especially in the turmoil in the revolutions which began in nineteen eighteen and nineteen and nineteen and nineteen, and in th- that period, the question became more clearly: what was the aim? Of the uh, what was the aim of the revolutions? How could the hopes and desires in those countries where revolutions were taking place? How could the popular hopes and desires actually be brought to fruition? Actually, really be implemented? And that became a key aspect of uh, of debate, and not just debate, but also of struggle in some of the in some of the uh, countries. Okay, um, so. Like I said at the start, this is kind of a, a different outlook on this period of time than people generally hear. And for us as socialists, the main point of discussing these historical questions uh, is always to think about what does it mean for us today? Uh, and, you know, where, where do we um, stand in relation to it? So what would you say are the main lessons from this period of history for us today? 
I think there are a number of uh, a number of lessons. I mean, first of all, we have to recognise that there can be periods where the socialists, those who stand against capitalism, can be relatively isolated. While there was opposition to the First uh, World War, in many countries there, which were involved in it, there was enthusiasm for the war. There was support for the war. The idea of fighting against the foreign invader. The idea of, uh, of fighting to defend, quote, our own country, end quote. And this is an important lesson, I think, because for many people who are active today, they may look back at the uh, at, um, at Bush and Blair's uh, invasion of Iraq and think that you know if there is a threat of war, there will automatically be big opposition, as there was big opposition to that war. It's not, but it's not always the case. That was a bit different because it was a crude, cold invasion of a, a country which clearly pay, uh, wasn't a threat to any of the major powers. It was clearly done for strategic reasons, which is one reason why there was so much opposition to that. But in different circumstances, the socialists can in fact be isolated by opinion. At the same time, what happened in the First World War shows that that isolation does not last forever, does not automatically last forever. I'm not saying that therefore it, the periods of isolation always end in revolution, Things can be more complicated than that. But nevertheless, you can see how uh, moods can change, how people's opinions, how consciousness can actually can actually uh, develop. Uh, and so therefore, it's a question of not being, if you like, too uh, demoralized even by a relative isolation. Because at certain points, the opposition to the First World War was uh, very uh, was uh, very isolated, but then comes the most important uh, lessons I think, which is that when you have mass movements, the question of how does the mass movement become conscious of what concrete steps it needs to take in order to win its demands that is the key question, because if you look what happened, just for example in Germany, and it's very clear there, the Social Democrats or the leaders of the Social Democrats, put themselves at the head of the movement. They adopted some of the phraseology of the Russian Revolution. They repeated some of the old phraseology of the socialist movement, you know, like they would stand and they would say, we as proletarians, and things like this. They'd use all this phraseology in order to buy time to try and stabilise the situation for capitalism. But because of the strength of the revolution in uh, Germany, it, words weren't enough to stabilise capitalism. And so you had, really, from the end of 1918, the beginning of elements of civil war in, uh, in, uh, in, uh, in Germany, which lasted, really, from the end of 1918 until 1923. Um, and in this civil war, for instance, the uh, social democrat leaders used increasingly brutal means in order to suppress the uh, suppress the uh, movement including execution without trial of opponents and things like this it wasn't simply an intellectual debate in uh, germany and this then resulted in a radicalization taking place with if you like over a period of time a massive loss of support for the german social democratic uh, uh, german social democratic party in fact 
By the summer of 1923, the then newly formed German Communist Party had a bigger support than the Social Democrats did. Unfortunately, and that's another discussion, that opportunity in the, in the summer of 1923 was not taken to change Germany fundamentally, to overthrow capitalism, something which if it had been uh, taken would have changed subsequent world history. But that's another story. But the issue of how to... Um, the, the, the issue of how the aspirations can actually be concretely achieved. That was the key question which was posed and can be posed again because we've seen in all decades since the end of the First World War in different countries, mass movements, revolutions uh, take place. It's not been a decade since the uh, First World War where somewhere in the world there hasn't been revolutions or mass movements. And the question which is posed in all of them is how to achieve those aims, how to concretely achieve what uh, the masses want. And that requires, if you like, a force which is able to suggest, to propose, these are the concrete measures which need to be taken in order to to consolidate our victory, to make a real change in society. And so in that sense, the, the lessons from this uh, period are, on the one hand, that even in difficult times, one should have confidence that movements can develop. But then also to understand that while movements can achieve a lot, they've also got to have a clear idea how to consolidate their gains, because otherwise the ruling classes, the capitalists, will play for time and then try and come back over a period of time in one in one way or another. So that's some of the real lessons. Okay, thanks very much, Bob. I think there's a lot of uh, food for thought there for people and we'll put a, a reading list with some um, further reading suggestions to go into some more detail on some of the things that Bob's mentioned. As Sarah said there, the further reading list is in the episode notes at socialistparty.org.uk forward slash podcast. Email us any questions for Bob or suggestions for future discussions to socialismpodcast at socialistparty.org.uk. And if you enjoyed today's episode, make sure to leave us a five-star review and hit subscribe in your podcast app to get every new episode straight to your device.